This episode of Luthier's Tale is brought to you by Zencaster, the podcasting tool I use to record every episode. It allows you to conduct an interview remotely and record each track separately. Plus, there is a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. It's super easy to use and there's no software to download. My guests click a link and we start recording. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast, now's the time to start. Click my link in the episode description or use my promo code LuthiersTale at Zencaster.com for 30% off your first three months of a pro account. I'm Ben Liggett, luthier and owner of Liggett Guitars. Every episode I interview someone that is passionate about their craft. This week I'm speaking with Ian Davlin from Ian Hates Guitars. Ian is one of the top luthiers in the country when it comes to repair. On his Patreon, titled Ian Hates Guitars, he walks other luthiers through the process of making repairs look pretty much invisible. Make sure to subscribe to his Patreon if you are an established or even aspiring luthier. There's some very impressive tips that I think anyone could learn from. You can also check him out on Instagram and YouTube under the same title, Ian Hates Guitars. And of course, later on in the episode, I make him answer the question, do you hate guitars? Let's get into it. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about several things, but first off, I want to say that you've got a really cool community going with the whole Patreon thing. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been fun. How did that get started? I kind of came in after it was already on and popping. Well, it started, uh, as a lot of things have recently with the pandemic and I found myself working at home. And uh, I had messed around with a YouTube channel before. I had decided that what I wanted to do since I was alone was I would set up a live stream and then people could, I would just work uh, in my basement and then people could join the live stream and chit chat with me in the chat on there. And uh, it was pretty cool. It was pretty uh, modest. I had, you know, at any given time, maybe 10, 10 or so people, but you know, uh, it was fun and it really took the edge off of uh, kind of that lonely shop uh, experience that we were all doing at the, at the outset of the pandemic. Yeah. And then, uh, so one young fellow who uh, was actually uh, came out, I met him at Dan early wines when we were doing uh, live in person uh, teaching back before the pandemic, Sam um, recorded some of my, live streams and actually kind of like pulled some stuff out for snippets just to kind of fill out my YouTube Mm -hmm. channel since I was already kind of doing it. I was kind of interested in it anyway. And, um, he made these funny little videos and added little video things to him and, uh, little, little effects and little jokes and stuff. And, uh, it was really fun. And then I wound up getting him a job 
out at Dave's Guitars in Wisconsin. So he took off and he couldn't do it anymore. So I started doing, I was like, all right, I'll, I'll figure out video editing. And uh, so I started video editing on my uh, Mac MacBook Air, which was completely underpowered for doing any kind of video editing. Mm-hmm. And so I went to my wife and I you know, with hat in hand and said, baby, can I, can I use a little family money for a, to build a PC? And she said, well, instead of asking me, why don't you put together, I'll, I'll start this Patreon for you and maybe you'll make like 60 or 70 bucks a month and you can just kind of, kind of do it that way. And I started the Patreon and, uh, uh, it just took off immediately and I just kind of went, Oh, well, I guess I'm doing this now. So <laughs> that's uh, awesome. So yeah, that's, that's how it started. Um, and then, so, uh, yeah, we, I think after that, like it took off pretty fast and I was like, well, what, what can I produce online that could have value? And so I kind of started, um, we, we started just doing interviews and I was getting good people to come on and talk and that was fine or whatever, but I wanted to see if I could replicate what I had done out at Dan's, uh, on, what were you doing with Dan at the time? Well, I had done. I think at that time I'd gone out and taught five classes, one of which the first one was really, um, really pretty informal. Uh, but I worked on some of Dan's projects. It was mostly a lecture and then me doing, you know, me working on a couple of, of touch-ups that Dan had kicking around the shop. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to figure out how to do it hands-on. So we made up some fake, uh, Martin sides and put holes in them, you know, replicating what I, I suspect is a pretty, pretty standard Martin finish schedule and put holes in them. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I think that was probably the third, third one that we did where we did that and actually had people hands on. And I went over, uh, some of the touch up, uh, repairs that we did, uh, for the Stu Mac video, one was a putty repair and then one was kind of a veneering repair. Uh, and touched it up and it was pretty well received. So that's what I kind of tried to, uh, replicate on a zoom call. And I think I taught it. Okay. There, there are certain things that, you know, you're only going to get from a live thing where like, I can like look at you brushing and realize that you've got your brush too wet or mm-hmm. you're, you know, you've got too much color in the, in the mixture or you got too much pigment or too much dye or something. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, what we're, what I started, uh, we call it ding Kings. And, yeah. uh, and so that is the ding Kings component of it where I'm starting to figure out how to standardize some of these touch-ups that kind of come up over and over again. I mean, Martin side punctures are a real, like, you know, in the world of touch-up, it's something that you should be able to make money on. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. People drop guitars. They do. They put <laughs> holes in them. They, uh, yeah, it's, it's a real thing. So, and you know, good, good brown mahogany repairs are not, they're not super intuitive. Um, and, uh, they're not super easy, but once you kind of get a, a, a handle on them, I mean that, that, you know, what I do in like side punctures on Martins, a lot of that translates to how I might 
you know, try to hide a headstock break a little bit or make it look a little bit better or any of that stuff. So, sure. you know, some, some mahogany finish knowledge is, is what you get in the, in the first part. And you, so is mahogany easier or harder in your opinion to blend than other woods? Well, I'd say it's a good, it's a good mid mid level mm-hmm. thing. Uh, it does have some chatoyance. It's got some depth, you know, it'll roll around in the light and, uh, you know, certainly give you a lot of different looks. Um, so it's, I'd say it's a good mid-level. I mean, in, in, in terms of, um, you know, not opaque colors, kind of the range of difficulty, I would say, would start with, you know, a dark Indian rosewood would probably be the easiest. Sure. Like I could, I could almost fill, I could fill that with maple and paint you something that was, you know, hard to detect. Mm-hmm. Uh, mahogany's, you know, we're getting a little bit of chatoyance. We're getting a little bit of, uh, you know, interesting, uh, finish schedules with like pore filler and stuff like that, which if you, you know, if you don't kind of replicate that, you're kind of hosed. Um, and then we go up to like bare spruce, you know, yeah. like a top spine, which is like any, Anything that you do paint-wise on bare spruce, you're immediately going backwards. Uh, so uh, you end up digging yourself a bigger hole than you started yeah. with. Sometimes, yeah, I find like like we we did a section on top spines, and I find that uh, you know on bare spruce, if you don't get it in wood selection, uh, you're and you don't get it in a good a good joint, like you're not going to paint out a uh, a bad glue joint. You're not going to paint out, uh, run out, go in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just not going to paint those things out. And so like a lot of times on, on splines, you know, I put it in, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And then, you know, kind of, kind of learn how to live with, live with that repair. Um, you know, like on, on anything with color, like if you do like a sunburst, like people are like, oh my God, you touched up a sun, you know, sunburst. Oh my God, on a top piece of spruce, I'd much rather have color to work with because once it does have color on it, then you've got something to work with and you can kind of, you can kind of play around with uh, some, some hiding techniques, but bare spruce in the, in the dive difficulty. I mean, that's, you know, a couple half gainers and a couple twists and <laughs> backward somersault and the, you just know where to hide in those. I imagine uh, like an arch top with bare maple sides would be similar in difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Maple's maple's right up there. Um, you know, you would think uh, that highly figured maple would be more difficult, but it's actually like it, a lot of times it's so confusing, but like a good, a good plain maple that's, that's got a depth you know, got a depth of chatoyance to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could put that right up there with, with spruce. Like yeah. it's, it's, uh, there's just nowhere to hide on that stuff. Uh, but yeah, a lot of like, you know, quilt or flame or stuff, you know, if it's rolling around, you can do some subtle things with a, with a fake, you know, with a fake, uh, flame. Uh, you know, the only problem is, is, you know, your flame is like static as you roll it around in the light. So it's one of those things like it's, it'll look pretty good until you start moving around the light. But, you know, 
Um, but sometimes they're so busy that everything's moving and it, it, it sometimes it's just it's so distracting that, uh, that you, you can have, uh, you can have pretty good success with it. Kind of get away with a little bit more than just a plain piece. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, plain is, plain is difficult. I mean, the bottom line is, is, you know, like anytime you, anytime you bring paint, like it just is, you know, we see it all the time in repair where you paint it in one direction and you're like, oh my God, this is invisible. And then you, you roll it around in the light and it looks like yeah. clown shoes. Yeah. But what's, what's happening is, you know, your touch up probably still looks dynamite. It's just lost its context, you know, like it's just it doesn't make any sense to the surroundings because you're looking at a different layer of uh you're looking at a different layer of fiber as you as you move it around mm-hmm. um whenever you're repairing um old instruments that say have uh colored binding from mm-hmm. uh you know age on the lacquer and such do mm-hmm. you do you ever whip an airbrush out and and hit that What's your method for coloring binding? Um, coloring binding is tricky. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, is very subtle, and it's uh, it's not instinctual to be that subtle with it. You think it's one of those things, you know, like you just look at it and you go, oh, yellow. Yeah. You know, well, I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, relic guitars now where, somebody you know they they shot a color on there to to make it look aged and it's like yes you detected that the color is yellow but it's it's a slight you know uh an aged lacquer is slightly more subtle than that um the other thing too that's a little tricky is you know aged lacquer that that's seen uv you know like it's it's ambered out like it looks a lot different than lacquer with dye in it so mm-hmm. it's another one of those things where, uh, you know, a lot of times I may miss the color by a little bit just to keep it from getting a weird look from from using more more dye than uh, is called for. So my my uh, my binding coloring uh, goes back and forth between dyes and pigments. Sometimes if I'm trying to not have like some, you know, sometimes it's a, if it's a more muted looking color, I might grab pigments and do a dilute, kind of a dilute mixture of pigments, mm-hmm. you know, not so that it goes opaque, but um, one of the things is I can control uh, chroma better in pigments because you have both black and white to play with and dyes, you're pretty much hosed. You've got black dye, white dye is just less dye, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, uh, there are some, some tricks in dyes, but they're not, they, they all come, come at a cost too. Um, so sometimes you can get to a better color in pigments. Um, but once again, it's, it's pretty subtle stuff. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Jewett, who, who has homestead finishing was telling me that, um, uh, he was telling me that vintage amber is tobacco brown plus lemon yellow, and oh. that got me to th- got me to thinking that. Um, and if you look at tobacco brown, it's like, um, to my eye, it's got a lot of black in it, but it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of red in it. Um, so, uh, it's a good starting point. Like, 
it seems like when touch-ups go go wrong, where you're touching up and you you think things are going good, and then you look at it and you go, "Oh my God, what happened?" That that fate, you know, that fateful one one squirt too many with the airbrush it is almost always red uh, mm. that jumps out. Like red ambush is is just a real it's a real thing, and so I almost always start uh, with as little red as possible. I mean, you need red to make brown, uh, but, uh, tobacco brown is pretty, it's pretty neutral. So I might like, I might mix up my own vintage amber with, uh, the lemon yellow and then, and then varying, uh, degrees of, uh, tobacco brown in it. And then I might bring up my, bring up my red in a subsequent, uh, uh, shot with uh, a very dilute mixture of maybe even not even going to red, but going to like red, red mahogany and trans tint. And then just very dilute, like to where you can't even really tell that it's going on. Um, bring up that red, just, just a skosh. Uh, Cause they're most of the ambers do have a red component in it, but you know, it, it can be, you know, to, to get it right and not, and not blow past into something that's just you know orange, or you know atomic yellow. It can it can be pretty. Uh, it can take uh, a sensitivity to it and really uh, playing around with it. The other thing too is you got to have good you got to have good light. Um, you know, like if you're touching up under an incandescent, um, don't be surprised if you take it out into the sunlight and it's way too red because those. Uh, incandescent bulb there, there aren't too many of those anymore but if you have like a warm bulb that's giving off red mm-hmm. uh it's gonna mask the red that you're putting on it in a sen- in essence what you're gonna have to do in order to detect the red is you're gonna have to bring up the red in your mixture past the the point of the red that is being reflected back off of the uh binding from from the light bulb if that makes any sense you, yeah it does do you so, have a light bulb that you prefer for your shop? Because I try all different kinds. And uh, yeah, I have not found one that I love yet that gives off enough brightness and isn't too either warm or like that pale blue, awful LED thing. Yeah, so the LEDs have come a long ways. Um, you know, there's there's two things to look for in lights. One is... One, of course, is your color temperature, which is your Kelvin range. Um, you know, we, we're we always going to measure things against against uh, sunlight at noon, I guess, is probably, is probably the accuracy that we go after. Mm-hmm. But like every, every uh, you know, every color is made up of the reflected light coming back at you. So if you take a white piece of notebook paper and you have a red light bulb, it's sending you back red information. Like Mm -hmm. what color is that piece of paper? Well, it depends on what light you're, you're throwing at it. So in, in that sense, you know, the fullest, you know, like, I mean, the sun has a color to it, you know, like er everything has a color to it, like pure white light bulb. I don't think really, you know, I would say like 5,300 K is probably the standard of what everybody's going to say is, you know, the most neutral, most accurate. Mm 
Okay. Uh, I, I tend to like it a little bit bluer than that because uh, it helps me see a little bit better, but not, not by much. But the other thing too is, um, so there's another stat called CRI, which is I think color, color registering index, color, color something index. But uh, that's, that's how full the, the color is coming off of the light. So if, if you had a white light bulb and you split it with a prism, uh, you would have like this, you know, spectrograph of, of color that was, that was coming off of it. And so the light's accuracy is like how, how full spectrum that white light is like, is it red heavy or blue heavy or whatever? I don't fully, fully understand that, but I know the higher the number, the better. Okay. And so uh, I think once again, that's probably measured against the sun, which would be a hundred. And most of my bulbs are probably at least 90, I would think. LED, um, compact fluorescence when they were, when they were king, they, you know, you could go and get a really high CRI, uh, light bulb. I don't know that a lot of LEDs even kind of trumpet their CRI anymore. So, uh, it's something to look at though. If you wanted to get super accurate, yeah, get, get something in the 90 range. Uh, good to but, know. Um, what, a, what other kind of, uh, repairs do you hit on in ding Kings? Well, so far we've just done the touch up. I mean, that's kind of the, uh, in terms of my Instagram, like that's what people like mostly kind of go, go crazy over. It's also mm-hmm. the thing that I feel is underserviced, uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, one is it's, it's terrifying, you know, for a lot of people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, I don't know how many things I've done where I've taught and I've, I've said, who's, who here has dug themselves a shame hole with, uh, with finish repair and all of the hands go up, including mine. You know, I've gone into some real dark places personally with, uh, some finish repair, uh, over the time, over times. So, um, I've mostly been focusing on that because I, I think it's the one thing that, I mean, you're not going to like for repair, uh, you're not going to get in and out of a career really without having to at least cover your own tracks. Like whether or not you, you bid repair or bid finish repair is another story. But I mean, if you, if you can get through this career without a mistake where you have to do some finish repair, I mean, you're, you're, uh, some kind of mutant or something. Yeah. It's I mean, an inevitability. I, I mean, I worked in a finished department and I've got like all this mu- muscle memory from, from working around brand new guitars that, you know, dings were a super big deal. And I was, you know, like I was a crazy ding machine before I did, you know, when I was in repair, before I went into the guitar factory, like I was just, you know, a clut, uh, comparatively. And even after the finished department, I'm still, it's still going to come up. Something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to overshoot with your fret file. You're going to like, you know, you're going to turn around and something's going to come, you know, sailing off, the, you know, sailing off the edge of your bench and take a funny bounce and hit a floor mat, come bouncing, you know, come, come back up to the top of the guitar. Like it, it just, it's going to happen. So that's, that's kind of, uh, what I want to do. I think we will branch out though, for sure. I got to figure out how we're going to do it. 
uh, effectively. It's a little hard to teach on Zoom, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to get up close and and uh, yeah, it's different than teaching live. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Um, it's better than I would have would have guessed. Um, I don't know how many people are actually doing their doing their boards and stuff, but uh, you know, I will say like one of the reasons why I wanted to do the finish thing too. And one of the things that I wanted to do with the Patreon in general, uh, and probably if anybody's listening to this has heard me t- t- talk about this before, it's probably pretty redundant, but I really wanted to do something that was uh, vocational rather than avocational or whatever the opposite of vocational is. Um, like, I feel like uh, in terms of, Luthery content out there. There's a lot of kind of uh, artisanal stuff, and not a lot geared towards guys that are that are actually trying to make a living doing this. And mm-hmm. so, I wanted to be, you know, rather than you know showing somebody a two-page blueprint on a double neck hurdy gurdy, you know, like I want to like show somebody how to make an extra hundred bucks on a refret. You know, like I want to get you know, guys in the back of music stores out of, you know, out of poverty, if, if, if at all possible, you know, so that's, that's the goal of the Patreon. And so to that end, like the finish thing is like, you know, getting back to that thing where, when I said, you know, who, who here has dug themselves a shame hole, like all those hands go up. I mean, it's a tough job, you know, like, uh, if I can, you know, show, you know, help somebody step over my trail of, uh, you know, empty wild turkey bottles, then, you know, like, then I'll be pretty happy about that. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a noble pursuit. I'm a big fan of vocational, uh, you know, jobs rather than sitting in an office somewhere. I think I find it more rewarding. That's for sure. Uh huh. Um, I wanted to ask you about like overall care of instruments. Um, you know, so let's start with like acoustics. It, in your opinion, um, what do people need to do to make sure their guitar lasts 50 or a hundred years? Well, um, you know, I'm going to say some controversial things about this, but I'm not a big, uh, I'm not a big humidity nut. Uh, I think a lot of the kind of the humidity fetishism that's been going on has been kind of passed down to us from from builders that were um, not making excuses. But I mean, I mean, uh, you know, everybody's built with green wood. Everybody's built with wood that they pushed the cure on. Everybody's built in, you know. Uh, less than ideal circumstances uh, and guitars, they crack, you know, and it becomes a, a huge, uh, you know, liability for manufacturers, both, both big and small. And so that kind of that 45% thing uh, got, I think, hammered into people mostly, I'm guessing from manufacturing. I don't really have any facts to back that up, but I'm an American. So there you go. The, um, <laughs> Uh, but I think like, I think, uh, I've seen a lot of old guitars 
and I've seen a lot of old guitars with cracks in them. I've seen a lot of old guitars with no cracks in them, like guitars pushing, you know, 70, 80 years old, 90 years old, uh, no cracks. And I'm sorry, but that guitar did not live, you know, all those years in, you know, 45% humidity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I just think like, um, yeah, I think that, you know, people are building with green wood. People are looking for, you know, everybody wants guitars now. Apparently there's a global guitar shortage, so people are cranking them out. And, uh, you know, uh, so we get this 45%. I personally, like, I, I start getting worried at 30%. Mm-hmm. Like, below below 30 is kind of where I'm like, ooh, boy, something something's going on here. But, um, you know, I've seen... I've seen cracks. I've repaired cracks. I've had them open back up. Uh, I've had them, you know, all, all kinds of stuff, you know, like it's just not going to happen. One thing I do tell people is like, I'm not a big fan of case humidifiers. Uh, me personally, I've got a room where my guitars live. And in that room is a, is a humidifier. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I have a small room that my guitars are in and it's basically like a, what like a humidor or something like that i just keep that room kind of kind of uh in the winter time i keep it ready to go you know about i mean i i think i got this thing set at 40 it probably stays at you know 30 during the winter when the heat is going uh but yeah i'm i don't know you know yeah and when i run the heat in the winter um, my house can get to 25 percent really quick yeah yeah, 25 is, 25 is pretty low. It's pushing it. Um, but, you know, once again, I've seen guitars that have, I know have seen 25, you know. The the other thing, too, is, I mean, with the case humidification, I mean, there are a whole host of problems at the other end of the humidity spectrum, too. Like, you know, a guitar that, you know, a guitar that I set the neck at in a place that's like, you know, like 30 or, you know, 30 or 40% in the winter, you know, maybe, maybe 50, 50% in the summer. Uh, if that goes and lives somewhere where it's 90% all the time, like that neck, you know, that neck neck angle is not going to be relevant for that, for that other humidity. Mm-hmm. And so also like if you dime out the humidity in your case uh, over the winter, if you're just one of these kind of, kind of uh, humidity zealots that's going to go in there and, you know, just constantly be keeping that thing pumped up. Uh, you know, there are problems on the other end of it too. Yeah. Yeah. And over humidification is something you definitely don't want. No, you uh, don't. And it's also something that you don't really hear, hear about. Um, but I mean, I've seen it, I've seen it where, you know, people have gotten their guitars so down, I, you know, probably that this was, you know, they had water inside their guitar, but, uh, you know, you know, glue joints will let go, you know, if it's super humid and it gets hot, I mean, if it gets warm, yeah, I mean, that could be pretty, it could be pretty, pretty devastating. Yeah. That's why I was never a fan of like just soaking a sponge and uh-huh. tossing it in the sound hole. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah. The other thing too, I mean, I mean, dry guitars sound better in my, to my ear. Yeah. This is something I was going to mention was that 
um, you know, I've done experiments with, like I built an acoustic guitar. I kept it at a few different humidities. And you start getting around, if it's at 50, it's kind of the tone, get, it gets soggy. It really yeah. does. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's a fine, uh, fine line. I, I think so. I mean, there's very, you know, like within a range, I mean, things can be undone with, with humidity. So if you, if you get your guitar up to 50% and you're like, this thing sounds like wet gym socks, you know, just, you know, dial it back down, you know. That's a folksy way of saying that. Uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, as far as, I guess it'd be, this would be a question for people building their own instruments, but um, you see so many factory instruments that you have to work on. What are the biggest mistakes uh, that builders make? I mean, I see, you know, the Gibson headstock breaking off is like legendary at uh -huh. this point. Um, do you see that as being just the lack of a volute? Um, that's part of it. I mean, a lot of the, if you think about it, you know, like a Martin neck is not too dissimilar. And how many Martin necks do you see, uh, broken in that, in that spot without a volute? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, slightly different angle, et cetera. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, Gibson does in there is they just, they a lot of them that I see, it looks like they didn't line up their cutout template right. Like the grain is so short across that transition, you know, like it's just gonna, it's just gonna break. It's basically, you know, you want as much long grain going through that transition as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And some of the ones that I've seen, so you, you've probably seen I do back straps from time to time. Yeah. I, I really only do that when that when there's just no surface area because of how short that grain is through the transition. And if they would have just angled their template, you know, I'm sure it must come down to, uh, uh, you know, trying to get as many, uh, blanks out of a, out of a billet as I can, but you know, like, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it really comes down to that. I feel, and you can kind of like you on, on guitars that aren't opaque, you can look on the side of the, the peg head into the transition and tell exactly how short that grain's going to be through there and whether or not it's going to be a weak, a weak, uh, weak neck. Mm -hmm. Somebody was telling me that there's like out of every, out of every billet that they, they do, there's two necks and one is good and one is trash just by the way they do it. But there's all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, they also hog out a lot of material around the truss rod under yeah. the cover. Always wondered about that. That that, that could that is one difference from the from the Martin one. But if you look at the if you look at Martins, I mean they you know, they've got long grain going through that. They're they're pretty pretty sensitive to that. I've mm -hmm. seen a couple short I've seen a couple Martin headstock breaks and they're all they're all short grain through through that transition too. No so. when it comes to repairing those, I see a more and more people doing giant splines in the back of them. Well, when do you think that's appropriate? And is that being overused now? Um, the spline technique, I, I don't know about, um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want somebody to take my, 
my word is gospel on it, but something doesn't something doesn't seem quite right about that. I'm sure if you select the wood just so I see a lot of guys doing splines that are really long too. Yeah. And that probably that probably makes more sense. Uh, those those long splines are probably as a result of seeing a lot of short splines fail, I would think. Mm. Um, I have seen a lot of splines fail. Um, I've been doing backstraps for some time, and I haven't seen a lot of those fail. Um, they could, you know. Uh, if you look at the way I do the backstrap, though, it's kind of going back to what we were talking about, about short grain through that transition, though. I, you know, like... If you go on frets.com, you'll see Frank does does one where he bends the uh, the bends a basically a side and does like a backstrap with with a side thickness, like as thick as you could possibly bend a bend a side into that into that transition. He he does one and it's it's a great thing. On a lot of them, I feel like I need to go a little bit deeper, and it kind of precludes me from bending them. Mm-hmm. But when I select the piece of wood and I put it in there, I'm really trying to get a lot of long grain continuity through that through that transition area. Mm-hmm. So uh, I feel like that there's something about the splines that I feel like it's too much too much glue joint going too too many different ways. I feel like I I don't know how to explain it, but it doesn't. I think it's a lot better when you have the start and the stop point further up the uh, further up the paddle and further down the barrel. So, yeah, uh, I, sh- I certainly I like the looks of the backstrap repair more so than splines. But if you're coloring it anyway, I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah i i don't I don't suppose it matters a lot. Once again, like I think, like for the most part, if you've got like a smile crack where it's got like you know, like it tipped over and you've got all this long grain and plenty of surface area to glue it tight bonding those shut. I mean, or hide gluing them, whatever you want to do really, mm-hmm. uh, within reason, uh, the, the, the only way that's going to break again is if, if it takes another tumble. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I just think like for the most part, I mean, I only do back straps under, under a certain couple different con- conditions. Uh, one, short grain over the transition. Two, you know, like if it's been broke a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. So, or if it's been broken, it's been poorly poorly repaired. I might I might do a back strap, but I'd, I'd say like career total, I've probably maybe done I don't know maybe fifteen of them or something. That's not a lot. Mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't come up that much but they sure make good instagram pictures yeah yeah you gotta love a before and after yeah although my experience before pictures tend to jinx my jinx my projects yeah i, I heard you saying that the other day uh yeah that's uh i hate it when you jinx yourself well i think it just raises expectations like once you got a before picture you're just kind of like oh now i gotta really i gotta really bring it up want to really make this thing invisible now so when you're doing a repair that say not common to you um in that you're not sure how long it's going to take how do you go about pricing something like that so i mean the last backstrap i did i think i i 
I did it for seven seven fifty, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how to describe how how I come up with that number. Um, that includes what, the covering it, putting new finish over that area, and stuff. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it it does include the touch up, uh, and some of that, like, um, you know, like that's that's probably my A game touch up at seven fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to try, you know, like I tr- used to try to bid uh, touch up for A game, B game, you know, like one, you know, like one one and done versus, you know, like I'm gonna. I'm going to do this until I get, you know, get it to the best of my ability kind of stuff. And I just found that was just overly, overly dumb. Like it just, it just didn't, it didn't work. Like a lot of times I'd say, I'd say that and then I'd wind up not being happy with it and, you know, trying it three or four times anyway. Yeah. I don't try stuff that, that much, uh, over again much anymore, but the, uh, but bidding, bidding touch up is, is, is challenging. Like, you know, the backstrap is one thing. I mean, I don't know, probably got, you know, a couple hours into that. I would think two hours, something like that. But the, with the touch up is another, it's another story. Yeah. Um, a lot of times I don't, you know, I could, you know, like it's one of those things, you know, we, we've, we've talked to a couple of people on the Patreon now that are real, like, uh, they write down every hour that they spend on things. And, um, you know, I just find, I, I think the reason why I hesitate to do, do that is because I think I'd find it really depressing. Um, I, I say the exact same thing when people say, how long does it take to make a guitar? Uh, uh-huh. you know, how many hours do you have in that? It's like, yeah, if I kept track, I would, I would quit. Yeah. I, and you know, maybe, maybe that's not, I don't know. I don't know. It's probably not the right way to do things, but you know, I'm a little, a little old to be changing up my attitudes about things, but you know, like it may have been a mistake. I mean, my, the name of my Instagram is Ian hates guitars and, uh, you know, like seriously, like maybe being unrealistic about things, my entire career is, is partly responsible for that, for that feeling. So so here is the question. Um, do you hate guitars? Uh, honestly, I don't see guitars anymore. You know, like, it's like, I mean, you know, like, I don't know how to how to describe it, but it's just, you know, like, it's not even, they aren't even items anymore. Like, I do, I do what I do on them, and, you know, it could be, you know, I don't know. I, d- I certainly do have a lot of PTSD around them. You know? like I've, <laughs> I've had, you know, like I've had some real, uh, real emotional trauma connected to guitars over the years, both, uh, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, there's a lot of frustration built up in there. Well, you know, I don't want to give you any like, um, uh, flashbacks or, you know, not make you sleep tonight, but do you care to relive, uh, a more traumatic story from your days in the trenches? Uh, well, I've got one here recently that was, what was pretty good. Um, I snapped the headstock off of Steve Martin's, uh, Martin guitar while I was working at Buzzy's, uh, at Lark street music. That was, that was fantastic. Uh, how did that occur? 
so speaking of short grain, I uh, had refretted. I'd done a couple couple different things. I think I made a new pit guard for it. I don't think I did a reset. I did some back cracks, a couple other things, but I, I refretted it. And uh, I did what I've done to every guitar that I've ever refretted. I was getting ready to put strings on it, and I just was like trying to get a sense of I, you know, I'd done some kind of, uh, you know, pretty typical things that you do to a Martin without a adjustable truss rod, and I was wondering how how you know how much tension was in the neck, how flexible it was, and so I just I just put my thumb behind the the headstock, and I just kind of put my palm on the fingerboard and just kind of leaned into it. And then I was, you know, sighting down the neck to try to like kind of see what the uh, what the relief was going to be like, uh, you know, with with string tension on it, or just kind of like, you know, just kind of give it a little little flex. Sometimes mm-hmm. it sometimes you hear like fret seat a little bit when you when you do that little flex. And uh, something I've done to like every guitar I've ever fretted. I, I mean, it's just kind of kind of part of what I do. I put my thumb back there and flexed on it, and that the peg head did not just crack; um, it exploded off of the guitar, like oh it exploded into the air. You know, went into the, you know, very nearly into the next room. You know, I was I was putting some force on it, but I mean, I mean, who ex- once again who expects a Martin neck to to break? Uh, and sure enough, like when I was looking at it, it was like, I've never really seen this on very many Martins, but it was super short grain across the transition. And it was, uh, you know, very difficult to explain how that's not my fault, but I, you know, like, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, I've, you know, I've been around guitars and, and, uh, that one was, uh, it could not have come at a, uh, you know, steeper emotional toll i mean so i'd done all this work and i was like you know like it's for steve martin so all you know like the whole time i'm i'm picturing that i'm i'm doing the repair so so well that he's going to invite me to his book club you know that kind of <laughs> stuff and uh so that all that all all that uh all those expectations kind of sailed away oh. but uh turns out he was really cool he's like yeah you know got a million of them what do i care Oh my God! Yeah, so the sinking feeling that comes with that—how uh-huh. do you deal with that after the? Fact? Well, I mean, so the the thing is, is you you know you walk around a block. Um, I I certainly did that. I called my wife and I told her I was quitting and I I didn't want to do this anymore and <laughs> it, it wasn't worth it and um, you know. I'm going to go, you know, live on the moon or something. Um, but the, uh, you know, you do all that and what you don't do. And what I tell guys all the time is you don't immediately start, you know, trying to dig yourself out of, out of the hole. Um, you, know, you walk like, away for a bit, walk away for a bit because nothing good happens, you know, with a paintbrush while you got swamp ass going, you know, like, it's just like, you're not seeing clearly, you know, you're not, you know, plus there's always like a ton of other avenues. Now this was an extreme example, you know, the headstock was broken off, but like, 
Oh man, I, I would see, there was a guy that I worked with at Groen's who, who put a ding in a guitar that it wasn't even a consignment. George had bought it. It was like, he'd put a ding into it. And by the time he got done futzing with that thing, he really caused some damage to this old guitar. And basically what had happened is he just, he went into that shame hole. He got myopic. He, you know, couldn't see the forest for all he knew was the fear that he'd done this damage to the guitar. And really what he could have done was he could have like, you know, went downstairs bought a can of Copenhagen, put a dip in and then rub some chew spit in it. And it would have been, it would have been fine. You know, like it would have been totally fine. So, you know, what I tell guys all the time is, you know, take, take a break, think about it. You know, a lot of times, like if it is something that you're not going to get plausible deniability and you're not going to rub chew spit into it or, or whatever, sometimes, and it's really hard to do. The first thing you ought to do is just call the customer and tell them, tell them what happened. If you can do that, I'm not the type of person that can do that. I'll always try to, you know, paint my way out of a situation, but the, um, it's probably the best thing. Cause you know, you have probably in my experience, uh, a 50, 50 chance of them saying, don't even worry about it. Yeah. You know, like, so, you know, let the, let the customer decide whether or not you need to, you need to crawl into a shame hole, you know, like, it's it, so easy to dig a hole uh, bigger than the original issue. It really is. And, uh, you know, th- there's a few things that I've learned over, over time, uh, you know, you know, give it some time before you, before you try to try to fix your, your mistake. Um, also, uh, you know, don't sand wet lacquer. Like if you, if you, for some reason you put something on and you're frustrated because you're like, you know, you want it to look good and you know, you're like, you want to have a second try that day. Don't do it. Just wait until the following day. Mm-hmm. Um, don't take, don't take attempts off with um, solvents in my estimation that always makes things bigger. Wait for a day and then, you know, get out your archeology span tools and just, you know, tediously take take your attempt off as small as you can possibly make it uh everything is worse bigger you know like it's just like as soon as as soon as you make it bigger the stakes have just gotten higher you know and then you get and then you get more nervous and then you make it bigger and you you know you try really hard that time and it doesn't work out you get frustrated and you try to take it off and you know, do it, do it one more time that day. And it gets a little bigger and a little bigger boy. It's really hard to recover from that. Yeah. Um, and phone a friend, you know, like (laughs) ask, you know, without seeming, you know, too self-serving, if you don't have a friend join Dean Kings, because you can send me a picture and I can tell you what you ought to do. And a lot of times I'm going to tell you, call the customer. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, you know, twice last month I had people come to the shop with, with guitars to have me uh, fix them in the shop. And uh, so, yeah, you can phone a friend. Uh, that's always a good thing. Sometimes sometimes it, it's something that somebody could have done themselves, but you're just too, 
you know, you're just too obliterated emotionally to, to think straight into it. Like I did two, I did two things that probably were completely within the person's capability, but they were just, they were just fried at that, at the point that they brought them to me. They were just so, you know, out of their, out of their minds with anxiety that it probably wasn't, wasn't wise for them to work on the instruments anyway. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, I feel like when you care that much about what you do, that you can't really hate guitars. You've got you. I feel like you care that much because you love guitars. Uh, <laughs> so it's well, a love hate thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, so I've got intellectual curiosity in what I what I do. Mm-hmm. Like the finish repair is really, uh, um, it's something that I've been banging my head against the wall for my entire career. You know, it started with a project in my, in my apprenticeship that, uh, I had, I don't know why he did this, but he gave me like a fifties Martin to take the back off of. It was like a fifties D 18. So they weren't super valuable yet, but he mm-hmm. gave me like a alcohol lamp and a butter knife. So take the, take the back off of this Martin. And as you can imagine, like it's pretty heroic through the curfing. And then when you get up to the blocks, it's like, you know, so needless to say, the knife came protruding through the back. And I, I remember thinking, Brown, you know, how hard can that be? You know, like, and then, you know, I think there was like the original color, to, like that you're probably too young to remember this, but the original Stumac dyes came in these big, big cylinders of dye. And, uh, you know, you had like three colors or something like that. One of them was brown. And uh, some kind of brown. And I was like, I'll paint that on there. I'll show that thing. And boy, it did not go well. (laughs) But that was the start of it. And I've been interested in trying to do that, do those repairs for some time. And uh, so the intellectual curiosities there, uh, you know, I don't care if I ever pull another piece of sandpaper on a Martin neck reset again. I mean, I've pulled a lot of sandpaper. I've squinted a lot of, uh, you know, squinted a lot of squints down fingerboard fingerboards at bridges, looking at the projection. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like, uh, I've set a lot of necks, uh, you know, put, put saddles at all different kinds of heights to varying, you know, success, uh, of, you know, what I was looking for. I've made saddles that retrospectively were too small or too, too tall. And some that were too short. I don't know. I find the whole thing, uh, very frustrating. Uh, also, <laughs> I mean, it's frustrating. It was, it was interesting when I was a young, young fellow, but now that everything is like, you know, going out into the world of the internet with your name attached to it. And then some Yahoo on the unofficial Martin guitar forum can, you know, say how he would have done it, you know, with all of the, uh, Monday morning luthier quarterbacking capabilities at, at their disposal. Like it just is not, it's not fun anymore for, for me to, to do that, to do that work. The, the touch up on like, uh, you know, mid, mid-level guitars that nobody's going to talk about on the internet that, that I still, I still, uh, take a lot of pleasure in, in the repair work, uh, that it's attached to a guitar at this point, it could be attached to a, a table. I mean, I'd probably just, I would enjoy touching up a table just as much as I 
would enjoy touching up a guitar. I still, you know, it's still cool. You know, like it's still like I still, you know, I still play guitar a little bit. I've got to mostly play square neck stuff now, but like I don't spend a lot of time wrangling a guitar, you know, like a six string strumming on it and singing about my feelings or something. You know, I don't <laughs> spend, spend a lot of time doing that. Well, but, I, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, but yeah, the real, the real thing is it, I selected Ian hates guitars because Ian hates customers was already taken. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's understandable. I, well, I have a lot of, uh, respect for repairmen, like, you know, like building a guitar from scratch is so much less daunting to me. It's like if I, if I screw up a, a uh, an aspect of the guitar, whether it's the fingerboard, neck, whatever, it's like I just make a new one. Mm-hmm. But you're dealing with like this static thing that, you know, has to remain original and it belongs to somebody. It, it just seems like all this um, stress that I don't have. And, and I, so I really commend you for, for well, doing I that work. That. I, that, you know, I worked in a guitar factory for, for a while and I enjoyed my time there. I worked at uh breed love for, uh, four years. Oh, awesome. And I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, there were, there were problems to solve, but you're right. Like, you know, you could sit down and nail out a set of procedures and maybe those procedures needed to be tweaked. Maybe there was parts of the, the procedures that worked well on one day with a certain type of rosewood. And then you, you know, the supplier gave you a different kind of rosewood and all of a sudden your fret slots, you know, come off the gang saw a little bit, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there was always that kind of stuff, but it was, uh, it was more reliable than repair for sure in terms of like what your emotional state was going to be like at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's a lot. It's uh it's kind of like, like when I was playing music, you know, I, I pretty much stopped performing in any way, mostly cause I'm not that good, but like the day of knowing that I have, a performance to do uh-huh. just like ruined my whole day uh-huh. anxiety. Like I never had before. And I, f- I feel like it's a very similar thing. Like if I have the odd repair, you know, I I'm really hoping it's not something more than worth more than is in my bank account. <laughs> yeah. It's uh that liability issue is certainly, uh, you know, at the upper end of, of repair, it's certainly an issue, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, it's just, it's just high stakes. The other thing too, with repair is, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but I, I was talking to a friend of mine who does, you know, incredible restoration on, on old Martins, valuable Martins. And he listed a bunch of stuff that he did on kind of, you know, like these heroic measures on a guitar that had been, you know, severely neglected, severely damaged by previous repair guys. And, you know, he did a bunch of stuff that all made perfect sense, you know, from a strategic point of view, you know, from an engine, you know, from, 
you know, our instinctual guitar related engineering point of view, it all made sense. And not one of them was, uh, guaranteed. Like it was so far outside of the, the norm of what you would expect to do to a guitar. There was no other, uh, repair by which to kind of judge it, you know, go, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, five of these have been done in the past and, you know, three of them, you know, worked out great and two of them failed. And we think it's because of this, you know, it's uncharted territory in a lot of these things. Uh, cause you're, you know, you're, you know, tying, tying instruments that were like, I mean, they're, they're steel string acoustics. They got weird, you know, they got the, it's not like a violin. It's got the, you know, like it's active. The strings are actively trying to rip the top off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it's just, they're weird forces. Uh, they were never, you know, they were disposable, you know, peasant noisemakers for, you know, mating rituals of, you know, days gone by. The fact that they were fetishized by, you know, some, you know, I don't know, just kind of new money American knobs, you know, like they're cool, they're cool instruments, but they're like, you know, they're, they're all like a lot of the old ones who've got, you know, they've just got these serious problems. Um, uh, and some of it too is like, you know, the, the most fetishized Martin guitars, for instance, were made when Martin was like experimenting with it, you know, bridge plates in the wrong spot, X brace, let's move it forward. Let's move it back. Let's, you know, like, let's put in a bigger bridge plate. Let's, you know, like, what can we do to where we don't have to, you know, eat a neck reset every, you know, every five years, you know, or even just, you know, like they would throw the, you know, the guitar would become unusable because, you know, for a long time, nobody knew how to do a neck reset. So, you know, like it's, you know, it's not a, a set in stone thing, but boy, you, you can't tell, you can't tell customers that, you know? Yeah they all want, you know, the, the guru, uh, thing where you're, you know, you're hanging your, hanging your reputation on all these kind of like harebrained, harebrained schemes. So what what is the bulk of your repair these days? So the bulk of my repair is, um, it's hard to say because I haven't taken any new work for several months and I'm, I'm probably going to, continue that position because I want to, I want to focus more on the Patreon, but I've got a few, uh, I've got a few guitars still lingering about. Um, when I do lift my, uh, my embargo on new work, I will probably only take in stuff that will service the Patreon things that I think would be interesting to do, a to do a book report on and, you know, write a little, little article about it. Nice. Um, but I don't want to be like a, like a full service, you know, all comers kind of guitar repair shop anymore. Like it just is not, it's not interesting to me. Um, also in the, I live in kind of the New York city area and it's just like, it's just not, it's just not healthy interacting with the people around here on, on that level either. Just not. At, at all. Um, I mean, most, most of them are fine, but I've had 
more crazy interactions. I mean, uh, just jaw dropping, like who, who taught you manners kind of, uh, interactions that I've ever experienced anywhere. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a place. It's a real place around here. Yeah. Sounds like it. Well, I think, you know, if you're, if you've made it to that position um, where you can refuse work and focus on something that helps the overall community, uh, that's awesome. And, and with all your, uh, with all the emotional labor you've done, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> getting to that point, I'd say you've earned it. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know how realistic it is, you know, like, uh, you know, financially or whatever, but, uh, yeah, in some regards I do feel, you know, you know, we get, we get customers when I was younger, I would get a customer all the, all the time guys that would come in and they would like almost kind of challenge your manhood on, on uh, if you would refuse a repair, they would kind of challenge your manhood, like saying, "Well, you know, like you must not be a real luthier if you can't handle this this kind of project." And that that still gets me, you know, when I think about like kind of you know tapping out of repair because I'm like, you know, I don't know, emotionally wounded or something. It does kind of like get me, like, oh man, am I, am I another one of those guys? Like, because I mean, the you know, guitar repair is kind of littered with those those broken souls out there, you know, there's guys out there that were, are probably just fine repair guys, but they've just been so battered by the, uh, by the process that, you know, they're slow. Can't get them, you know, you know, like I've, I've known a lot of people like that. They'd rather fix the ha- the handle on a hammer than work on a guitar, you know, poor fellas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, I want to thank you so much for uh, doing the podcast. And uh, so where can people find you? Ian Hates Guitars on Instagram. Is it the same on Patreon? It's the same on Patreon. And there's a YouTube channel that we we populate. If you're ever interested in knowing what we do on the Patreon, I put every interview that we do, we put a short up on my YouTube channel. And so you can kind of see see what's going on we just had a uh just an absolute nutso violin luthier on uh the last one who is doing all of these crazy patches with uh some very interesting 3d scanning techniques and and cnc stuff he's doing stuff that i don't think you could do with hammer and tong and just you know chalk and chisel chisel it out like you might be able to but it was very fascinating and uh there's a short of that on there we've had iris car on we've had uh dan early wine of course and uh yeah, we've yeah dan some... early one uh he uh joins the luthalongs very often too oh yeah yeah the luthalong is is another thing that we do it's it's uh basically the the dream of the original youtube channel was to have kind of a a place where salty, uh, salty Luths could come and come and be salty. And, oh boy, the Luth long has been, been great for that. Like we, we get a good crew in there and I get like that. Oh my God. When I worked at Groans, we had seven, seven guys up there and we would, I mean, we would be laughing so hard sometimes, like just the quality of bullshit on the Luth long is, is, uh, akin to that like large shop vibe of, you know, seven dudes that are, you know, working on guitars and being, uh, being crusty, uh, crusty a-holes, you know? Yeah. That's a lot of fun. 
Thanks again for listening to Luthier's Tale. As I said in the beginning, if you're thinking about starting a podcast, don't put it off. I put it off for a couple years, and I wish I'd started sooner. So if you're thinking about doing it, the easiest way to interview people remotely is using Zencaster. Use my link in the episode description or visit zen.ai slash luthierstale for 30% off a pro account for your first three months.